If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 11. We're in chapter 11. We were in 10 for a long time, but we're in chapter 11 this morning. And if, if you've been eager, we're, we're getting to Jerusalem this morning. So when we leave this morning, Jesus will be in Jerusalem. So it's been a long, long journey for him, but, but we're, we're getting there. And just at the outset, just by way of introduction, let me just just remind you that as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, that, that the identity of Jesus has been a theme throughout. So it's, it's been wrapped, focused, discussing who is this man. And, and really the first nine chapters, as we went through it, it was clear that Mark was making an argument that, that this is the one, the Christ, the Messiah. So he had testimonies and healings and, and even a voice from heaven saying, this is my son. So he had, had evidence, confer- confirmation over and over that this was the Christ. That's what Mark was doing the first nine chapters. However, throughout this process, we've also seen that the disciples, that, that the human characters are slow to catch on. They, they don't get it. And so then we find that there's kind of the climax at the end of chapter nine when Peter makes the good confession where, where Jesus says, who do, who do people say that I am? Well, they say this guy, this guy. Well, what about you? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter, Peter from the mouth of one of the human characters, there's an accurate um, affirmation of who Jesus is. And right after that, they finally get it. Jesus then adds another part to the puzzle. And he says, good, you're right. But as the Christ, I'm going to suffer. And that, that threw the disciples off again. So they finally get it, only to be not, knocked back down. So he's going to be the, the Messiah, yes, but he's going to suffer. And so we've had three predictions of we're going to Jerusalem, and what's going to happen there is I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be handed over. And so as we're making, to our way to, are making our way to Jerusalem, we know what's going to happen there. And the disciples are gradually getting the picture. And today, as we see, we're going to get there. The, Jesus and the twelve finally get there. And our, our, our passage focuses specifically on, on the entry into Jerusalem, on, on Jesus actually entering into Jerusalem and then into the temple. And so as you just read it straight through, the 11 verses, it seems pretty normal. There's some, some bits that may be a little strange, um, you'll see in a minute as we read it, but maybe a little confusing, but it, it's just a normal, normal procession, or it just seems normal on the surface. Even to add to, to the confusion, there's, there's this, this cult, this young donkey that, that this, this entry seems to, to center upon. And so we're going to look at the, the donkey, it's significant, and so before we read the passage, let me just tell you the main point of these 11 verses, which is, Jesus is entering Jerusalem as the promised king. Okay, so, so the point is he is entering Jerusalem as the promised king, the, the Messiah, the son of David, which we saw last week with Bartimaeus cried out the son of David. Now he's entering Jerusalem as the promised son of David, the king. And so as Mark is writing this account, as Jesus is, is orchestrating this event, this entrance, he's doing so to ensure that, that, that others, that people watching, his disciples, but, but most importantly, those who come after and, and, and hear or read about it, they will know that this is the Messiah. This is the King. So that's why I've titled the sermon, Behold the King. Behold the King. Jesus is entering Jerusalem as the promised King. So let's look at the passage. I, I'm going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 11. So Mark 11, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 11 so you can follow along as I read. So Mark 11, beginning in verse 1. And when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany... At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. 
If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And as they went away, and they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, namely, the Lord needs it, and he'll send it back. And they let him go. Verse 7, and they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So there's verse 11, what a puzzling verse, isn't it? We'll get there, but you've got to stick with me through 1 through 10 before we get there. But, but I've broken this down into, into three sections, and so the, the outline you, you can see, verses 1 through 6, there's, there's the cult for the king, so this acquisition of this, of this young donkey, this cult. And then second section, verses 7 through 10, we see the reception for a king, or for the king. And then finally, verse 11, we see the king in the temple, or the king in his temple, as we'll see. Well, let's start by looking at verses 1 through 6. So verse 1 through 6. So verse 1, it tells us that they're really close to Jerusalem. So last week we were in Jericho, which is about 20 miles away from Jerusalem. Well, now they're about two miles. So these two cities, Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, they're about two miles outside of Jerusalem. This is the town, Bethany, where where Lazarus and Martha and Mary were probably still living. Remember the, the interactions with them? His good friends, maybe that's where they've been staying while, while they're in Bethany. But, but they're there, and there's Mount Olives, which will come into play later. But notice verse 2. They're, they're just two miles away. They're, they're close. They're close to Jerusalem. And he calls his two disciples and said, Go into the village in front of you. It's an unnamed village, whatever village is there. And immediately as you enter it, you're going to find this colt tied. Okay, and you'll know because it's one that no one has ever ridden on before. Untie that one that's tied up and bring it. Because that's his directions. They're, they're, in Jerusalem, or they're, they're in Bethany, head to Jerusalem, and he, and he sends them on that, on that errand. And so this is where, where the, the main idea begins to show itself. So a, a practice as you're reading the Bible, as you're reading the Gospels, or you're reading really any passage of Scripture, you, you should notice things that are, well, why, why, why that? So as we read these 11 verses, well, why that? Why, why the thing about the cult? Why, why is that important? So it's there for a reason, so it's good to, to have the antenna up to say, well, wait a minute, let's, let's wonder, let's think about that. And so in this verse, there's this cult that's requested. Kind of strange, but not just any cult. It's a cult that's never been ridden before. Also strange. Why these details? We'll look down in verse 3. We'll, we'll come back to that thought. But look down in verse 3. After giving the two disciples, notice he doesn't say who they are. We don't know who they are, but the two disciples, they go. And he says, as you go, if anyone asks you what you're doing, right, that makes sense. There's this cult that's not his and people might say, well, we don't recognize you. What are you doing taking that colt? If anyone says that, you just tell them the Lord needs it, and he'll send it back immediately. Now, now some, some speculate maybe Jesus had prearranged this, or maybe Jesus just knows. I, I don't really think that's important. What is important is that he tells them to go do this, and then immediately what happens, verse 4, they went, they found a colt, they untied it. Someone there says, what are you doing? And they say, the Lord needs it. We'll bring it right back. In verse 6, when they said what Jesus told them, they let them go. And so this, this event plays out exactly as Jesus had told them, as he imagined it, as he said that it would. 
So that, that's one thing just to note that, that Jesus here is, is, is operating in a world, in a realm that, that these disciples have no idea about. Right? There's just one more, one more passage to put in that divine om, omnipotence, or om, omni-all-knowledge. Right? <laughs> one more, that he possesses all knowledge. I, I need to study my omnis, huh? Um, so, so here is Jesus who, who says, this is what's going to happen, and, and here's what you're going to say. Well, anyway, so look back at, at these six verses. And so Jesus wants an unridden, un, unridden colt, and we know, so as we're reading, we know what happens. We know that he wants this colt to ride back into Jerusalem. But the fact that, that he stops here, and he sends these guys in to get this colt, Jesus is, is making, is, is intentional in his planning. I mean, let's just, let's just remember, he's not tired. It's not like, oh, I've made it all this way, I'm two miles away, uh, time out, I've got to take a break I need a colt to ride. Go get an unridden colt because I'm tired and I just need to enter this way. That's not what's going on. He's intentional in getting this colt for this purpose. And the purpose is to ride in to Jerusalem this last two miles. He's setting up his entry. Now, turn, turn your Bible. Stay there, Mark. But turn to Matthew 21. Now, so, so part, of, part of the benefit of having four gospel accounts, especially when you, you talk about synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so they're called synoptic because... That's the word same, so people believe that they use the same source. So there's overlap in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a lot of overlap. And it's beneficial for us because, and, and John, the Gospel of John, is, is in a league of his own because he has, I don't know, the uh, majority of his material is, is unique. So he's, he's kind of the outsider who, who wrote later than the other two. But anyways, we have these three, and there's overlap. And sometimes it's beneficial to look at cross-references. Not always, but sometimes it is, and this is a case where it's really helpful. Because in Matthew 21... This is the same account that's taking place, but, but look at Matthew 21, verse 4. And after recording all, all that happened, Matthew adds, he says, this took place. In other words, the sending and get the cult and to bring it back. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then Matthew quotes from Zechariah 9, 9, from, from, from one of the minor prophets. And so before we look at it, we're going to turn to Zechariah 9, 9, but, but, but that's helpful for us because Matthew sees what happens as a fulfillment of something that Zechariah said. Okay, and so Zechariah's prophecy is going to shed light on this event. Okay, so, so we will look at what Zechariah says, and it's going to help us know, oh, that makes sense. That's why this unwritten, unwritten cult and why this riding into Jerusalem. So Jesus, what happens is intentionally fulfilling what Zechariah said. So turn to Zechariah 9. So that's kind of, it's near the end of the Old Testament. But read to, turn to Zechariah 9, and we're just going to look at two verses in Zechariah, or really one. But Zechariah 9, get there. So 9, so, so just read. Now remember what, what's going on. So this, this is what Matthew says happened. This is what, will fu- what was fulfilled by what Jesus did. So, so just follow along. So I'm going to read verse 9. And so verse 9 of Zechariah, chapter 9. Zechariah writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here's Zechariah. Rejoice. Shout aloud. Your king is coming to you, Jerusalem. Your king is coming, righteous and, and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. And so there's this, this, this prediction, this prophecy that the, the king 
to bring salvation to Israel is going to come riding, not on a war horse, but on a, on a donkey, on the foal, of a don- on this colt. Not with, a bun- not with a bunch of warriors around him, but, but in this humble procession. A humble king, the future king that Zechariah prophesied was about to enter Jerusalem. So as we read in Mark 11, this is the humble donkey-riding king that Zechariah talked about. And so Jesus procures this, this donkey so that it's clear that the king is coming. The king is coming to Jerusalem, and he's going to come on a donkey. And so Matthew, who, who directly quotes Zechariah and Mark here, our author, wants the readers to understand exactly what's going on. The identity of this one is that of king. And so this is different than, remember, in, in the previous chapters where there's this, this messianic secret that don't tell anyone, just go your way. Don't, it, it's not a secret anymore. He is publicly proclaiming the king is entering Jerusalem. He's going he's gonna to proclaim to all who are there who see that the king is coming. So that helps us understand that the abnormality of the donkey, doesn't it? It's not just some random, random animal. No, this, this helps us understand the entire passage that the king is coming. One commentator writes, This was no spur-of-the-moment idea on Jesus' part. For those who had eyes to see, it was a deliberate claim to be the one of whom the prophets had so clearly written. Behold the king. He's entering Jerusalem, which leads us then to verses 7 through 10, the reception for the king. So the two disciples, they come back with a colt, and they throw their cloaks on the young donkey. Now, there, there's nothing special about the cloaks being thrown on the donkey. This, this is one who's never been ridden before, which means there's not a saddle. Okay, I'm, I'm not a horse rider, but, but I'm sure it's not comfortable riding on a bareback donkey. So they throw their cloaks on the donkey so that Jesus might have a place to sit. In verse 8, And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields, and those who went before and those who went behind. So there's procession. That Jesus is in the middle on this donkey saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And so this is a reception for the king. This is a kingly entrance. Notice, let me point out three things about this, this entry. First, Jesus is riding. He's riding into Jerusalem. Other than, other than crossing a boat on the sea, Jesus has done nothing in the Gospel of Mark but walk. Right? He's never ridden anything in Mark's gospel, but here he's riding, not walking. And it's not because he's tired, like I mentioned, but, but rather he is riding. He is separate from, I mean, remember, this is near Passover, so you're going to have tons of people process, process, processing to Jerusalem. And here's Jesus ahead above everyone. Right? I'm riding a donkey. I'm going. I mean, think about the, the, the members of the royal family in England or, or about the president in, in our country, they're, they're not going to events in, in their Ford Focus or their, their Volkswagen Jetta, right? They're, there's a procession. They're, they're set apart. And, and oftentimes it's, it's dozens of black limousines or, or SUVs where it's announcing this, there's something special about this person. And that's in a sense what's, what's happening. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. And second, the, the road before him is coded. It's prepared with, with cloaks and leafy branches. Now, again, this we, we already looked at Zechariah 9, but, but there's other passages where that, of the Old Testament that are, that are alluded to in this, this passage. So, so, for instance, 1 Kings 1, uh, there, there that's when, when David is getting ready to die. One of his sons is, is taking over the, the, the throne, and Bathsheba says, wait a minute, you said my son could be the king, and so Solomon comes, and David says, okay, 
And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, get all the servants and, and take, take Solomon and have Solomon ride my mule into Gihon or into the city and proclaim with a trumpet that he's the king. Okay, so, so that's part of, part of what's being alluded to here, that, that here's someone riding on, on a mule who, who's being um, coronated as king. But the most obvious allusion, so you can write this one down, is 2 Kings 9. So in 2 Kings 9, in, in verses 1 through 13, that near, near the end of, of that passage, Elisha, who's the prophet at that time, he says, sends one of his prophets, he says, now go, you're going to appoint someone king, and his name's going to be Jehu. He's this military leader. He's, he's going to be anointed king over Israel. And in 2 Kings 9, verse 13, listen to what happens. So Jehu meets with Elisha, then goes back, and he's telling all these people what's happened. He's just telling them, yeah, this prophet came and anointed me king. And listen to what happens after he tells them that he's been made king. This is 2 Kings 9, 13. <clears throat> and it says, Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and they proclaimed, Jehu is king. And so, so, so there's this, this royal uh, act where it's, we're, we're red carpeting the way before the king. This is royalty. That's exactly what's happening, this royal undertone that's accompanying Jesus' procession. They're, they're recognizing, let's put our cloaks, let's put these, these branches, these leafy branches, these palm leaves on the road. This is, this is the king coming to Jerusalem. They were meant to prepare a road for Jesus, kind of a red carpet treatment. Then lastly, notice the shouts of praise that accompany his entrance. Verse 9 records that those who are in front and those who are behind are shouting. So they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the, the son of David, the kingdom of our father David. Blessed. And so as we're reading Mark's gospel, we clearly understand the significance of these cries. Right, we say, yeah, they recognize this is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the one who's coming to bring the kingdom. He's going to save you. Wow, what great cries. But a different question is whether this crowd understood exactly what they were saying. And I'd say they probably didn't. They probably didn't. In fact, these cries, a lot of these come from, from psalms, from, from sets of psalms that would have been regularly recited as they're making their way to Passover. And so some of these psalms, they... As we read it, we say, wow, they knew that Jesus was the one. Now, some of them may have, but it's likely that they didn't know. They're just saying, here's, here's this teacher, Jesus, that we've heard about, and he's going in Jerusalem. Let's, let's, let's sing. Let's celebrate. Let's, let's be festive. Even though they didn't get it, right, the disciples, they still haven't really gotten it either. So, so to think that these crowds get it, and in fact, at the end of this story, passage, that there's no more crowd, which tells me maybe they didn't get it. But, but regardless of if they got it or not, it doesn't take away from the fact that their words, their praises could not have been more accurate. I mean, whether they knew it or not, this one had come in the name of the Lord. That was a right cry. Whether they knew it or not, he was coming to bring the kingdom of David. Whether they knew it or not, this man was deserving of every cry, of every hosanna, of every praise. This, this was the one meant to receive those, and he did whether they re recognized it or not. And so he's accompanied by his disciples in this festive crowd all the way to Jerusalem, which then leads to, to our last verse, verse 11, the king in the temple. So Mark, this, this anticlimactic, so we have this, this festivity, this entry. And then verse 11, he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he gets to Jerusalem and all this festivity, and then he goes in the temple, looks around, and then leaves, goes back to Bethany. Do you catch that? He leaves. It's already late. 
So it doesn't stop. It's not like he's in Jerusalem. Great. It's there. It's time. The, the procession is over. No, the procession continues into the temple, which is significant. Mark simply records. He, he looks around, doesn't see anything. And he goes back to Bethany, where they came from at the start. So why, why does Mark feel the need to relay this fact? I think first, this sets the stage for what's going to happen the next day. So, so this is setting the stage. So Lord willing, next week we'll look at, at what he says, what he does in the temple when he comes back. But the day following this temple entrance, there's another temple entrance. So the next day he will go back to the temple. And it will not be anticlimactic. In fact, it will be very exciting, chaotic, his, his second entrance in the temple. But, but here, right now, what he's doing is, is that it's late. So he gets there. There, there aren't people in the temple. But, but he's going, and he's looking around at everything. I think, I think Mark's point is that this visit to the temple, it, it's a type of inspection tour. He's looking around because tomorrow he's going to come back. He's going he's gonna to cleanse the temple. He's going to judge the temple. He, he's just a, a, a evaluating the landscape. He's looking around. So that tomorrow when he comes back, right, he, he's not just a traveler. Right? He, he's observing. He's, he's not just a tourist that's coming and saying, well, let me see the temple. No, he's there as Lord over the temple. What's going on in here? Let, let me see. Let me observe what's going on. He's not a tourist. He's not there taking pictures and posting them on Instagram. No, he, he's there to see what's going on in his house. He's inspecting it, and he's going to judge it not favorably next week. The temple is not functioning as it should, and he, he's going to come back and say that. But here, the king enters the temple, he looks around, and then he leaves. Okay, kind of a precursor, setting up for what comes next. Well, that, that concludes the passage. Let, let, me, let me give you two, two applications that, that I see from, from this that, 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 we can, that, we can, that we can think rightly about what, what's happening here. First, the, the king and his kingdom. So the king and the kingdom, this is, this is the king entering Jerusalem. And with the coming of the Davidic king, so do you recognize they talk about David's kingdom. Last week, Bartimaeus was crying, son of David. So with the coming of, of this son of David, many people assume that, that the kingdom was going to be a worldly kingdom. We want a Messiah who's going to free us from these worldly oppressors. And the disciples were part of this. They assumed that Jesus was going to overthrow the government structures of that day. And so God's rule is going to be right here in Jerusalem. It's going to be an earthly kingdom. But as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, it's clear that his intentions are not earthly. And he's not coming with chariots and sword in hand. And if he were coming to establish an earthly kingdom right then and there, his approach would have been much different. Rather, he's coming as a donkey, on a donkey, humble, riding a donkey. And so I think just practically, I mean, this, this is a, a practical application, but I think when it comes to Christianity and civil government, it's helpful for us to realize that the kingdom of Christ is never, ever, ever to be confused with the kingdom of this world, at least not until he comes again. Right? And so if we're, if we're fighting for an earthly kingdom to be the kingdom of God, then we're wrongheaded. We have misplaced priorities. Jesus comes to establish a kingdom, yes, but that kingdom is not seen in worldly structures. I mean, I see this danger that we as Christians, we're, we're so identified with, with a worldly political structure or party that we're spiritually been out of shape when things aren't going the way that we think they should. Friends, God is not worried about who wins the next election. His, his kingdom paradigm is not dependent on who's elected president of the United States of America. 
We, we should not be in a spiritual flux depending on who wins in November. We should care about politics, absolutely. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but we ought not lose our priorities. The kingdom that we are a part of has a leader already. And he doesn't have to be elected. right? He is Lord. He is King. And our spiritual well-being, our, 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 our outlook on life ought to be tied to how his kingdom is advancing in our nation. Right? That ought to cause us unrest and sleepless nights. That, that the gospel is not spreading in our nation. That, that his kingdom is not advancing. Not because the right people aren't in office. His kingdom is coming. That's our prayer. But it doesn't happen through a political party. It happens through his church who is, who is propelled by his gospel. So let's be about the kingdom business. That's the first thing, the king and his kingdom. And the second thing, the king brings peace through death. The king brings peace through death. We didn't read this, but in Zechariah 9, the very next verse, verse 10, Zechariah writes, so here's this one coming, this humble king bringing salvation. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So this idea that this king who's coming is going to, is going to cut out the chariot and the war horse and the battle bow. that's all gone. There's going to be peace. And so people, people thought, yeah, the king, when David's son comes, there's going to be peace. But they didn't think rightly about the peace. The peace isn't the issue. They said, yeah, we want peace. But in their mind, the peace was established through, through physical conquering. The, the son of David's going to take care of all our enemies who are ruling over us and make life difficult for us. That's what they thought, but, but this is not the peace that Jesus comes to bring. Right? He comes, and the peace that he's going to bring is through death. I mean, so, so we just have to recognize the tension that these disciples are facing. So they've worked all, all of Mark 1 through 9, of chapters, chapters 1 through 9 of Mark, saying, you're the Messiah, you're the Messiah. Okay, we got it, now... I'm the Messiah and I'm going to suffer. Wait a minute, you're going to suffer? And now you're the king, you're David's son. Well, I thought you were going to suffer. You? And so the, the disciples don't have a category to understand a suffering king. Right? A king conquers. He doesn't lay down his life. He doesn't have his life handed over. But that's exactly what the Messiah came to do. He came to conquer, yes, but not in the way that they thought. In their mind, the greatest enemy was this Roman Empire, these Gentiles over them. So peace would mean conquering them, but when Jesus comes as the Christ, he does bring the promised peace, but the enemy to be destroyed to ensure that peace wasn't Rome. And it wasn't. It was much greater. Right? The enemy was much greater than any earthly ruler or, or empire. Jesus comes and accomplishes peace by defeating an enemy much greater than Rome, by conquering an opposing force much more powerful than Gentile rulers. Jesus comes and brings peace. And the puzzling thing is he does so by, not by conquering the enemy, but, but by being conquered by the enemy. Right? So it's his death that brings the peace for God's people. He brings peace through his death. The king lays down his life as a ransom for many. And we'll see that as he, as he continues. But the Messiah comes to conquer, but he conquers through his death. Let's pray. Father, we are your people. Father, we confess that, that were it not for Christ and his death on our behalf, his sacrificial death, we would still be hopeless without the world. We would still be not a people. We're thankful that we are your people. So we ask that you would help us to think rightly as citizens of your kingdom, as, as, as those under the king, our king, Christ. 
We worship him now as the one ruling and reigning on his throne. It's in his name we pray.